going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Happy Election Eve. Yeah, we'll go with that one. Hope all's well with you and yours. Man, oh man, everybody's... I had to laugh. Every time I walk into the studio, I'm like, all right, Rob, did you get them all riled up? Did you get them all ready to go? Man, people are on edge. Was it something I said? This is what Rob said. It's not. It's uh, it certainly, I think, gotten to that point. We are now at a fever pitch. Day 28 on the election campaign. Tomorrow is the day that some Albertans will be casting their ballot, as it turns out. A lot of people already have. I was one of them. Cast my ballot on Saturday. And I'll reiterate something. I had not voted previously. And I know that that goes against every moral fiber in some bodies. But it was something that it became kind of a a point of uh, that I, I wanted to make was, hey, this is this is me being, especially as a reporter and as a news director, I can walk the talk. I'm not going to be unbiased or I'm going I'm going to be as unbiased as I possibly can be. And I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. Any kind of perception. And again, I know it's a secret vote. I know that no one is going to know how I voted. But it just felt like the right thing to do. I don't hold it against any other reporters who decide to cast their ballot. It's just one of those things. It was a personal choice for me. This time around, though, as a talk show host, as somebody who is paid to have an opinion, I voted. Am I going to tell you how I voted? No, not even a little bit. I will say I did a little, I went on a little bit of a, right after I voted, went on a little bit of a Twitter uh, rant again. And I just said, here's what I voted for. I voted for the economy. I voted for education. I voted for healthcare. I voted for a party and a candidate who I could stand behind in any way, shape, or form. I did not vote because it was the lesser of two evils. I did not vote because it felt like I needed to hold my nose while I felt really good about it. I have no doubt that should my candidate of choice be selected to represent our riding in Edmonton, that that they will uh, represent us well. So here's hoping. All goes well. And again, the world is not going to end on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or whenever we get the results. But I hope at some point, this is a conversation that I want to have tomorrow, is how do we move on from this campaign? How do we actually get beyond the vitriol, the hurt, the angst, the anger? How do we actually move ahead so that everybody can actually have a decent conversation with one another again? Because it feels like no matter where you turn, somebody is turning it around and trying to label each other in different ways. So that'll be for tomorrow. For today, though, we're going to start things off and give you a little bit of background on in just a couple of minutes as to why we're highlighting Calgary Elbow. We have two of the four main uh, candidates on the show today, and I'll explain why in just a second. Also coming up, we're going to talk bullying, heartbreaking story of a young Calgary girl who took her life, Syrian refugee, just nine years old. Kathy Keogh from the Calgary Counseling Center is going to join us after 4.30 to talk about the mindset, but also to how to have that conversation with your kids 
to talk about bullying. We're also going to talk, we're going to keep it with the election after five o'clock and talk about Twitter bots. This is something Adam Toy has been going through dozens upon dozens of accounts to get to the bottom of. And he'll explain what he found after five o'clock. And also Game of Thrones. Yeah, that show uh, hitting a fever pitch as it the final season began yesterday, last night. Uh, Brett McGarry is going to join us after four thirty or after five thirty. Pardon me to uh, to dissect that. Also talk about the cult that has become Game of Thrones fans. We're going to talk Calgary Elbow next here on Calgary Today. Right after the writ was dropped, we were going to do. A whole town hall radio forum right here at 770 CHQR headquarters for those vying for Calgary Elbow. And we had a whole setup all ready to go. It was going to go from 7 until 8.30. Danielle and Rob were going to be the moderators. I was going to be the, the audience host getting questions from those in the crowd. We had it all planned out. Then we get an email a few days. This was going to happen April 4th. Then we get an email saying, yeah, not happening. A couple of the candidates backing out, one one saying the value to door knocking our immediate constituency and meeting with and speaking directly with our Calgary elbow voters. There was more value to that than actually talking on the radio. That would have been Doug Schweitzer of the UCP. So we ended up reaching out to all the candidates again and saying, okay, well, we'll do one-on-ones with you all. Two said yes. This is a hot button uh, riding. We didn't want to uh, leave it waiting in the wings. So we're going to continue with those discussions now. We're going to start with the incumbent Alberta Party candidate, Greg Clark. He joins us now on the program. Greg, thanks for the time. Great to be here. What are you seeing as the number one issue as you go door knocking around Calgary Elbow? Without doubt, it's uh, it's jobs, economy, uh, getting pipelines built. But I'd also say an elbow, and I think of the rest of the province, is uh, people are looking for balance. Uh, they want to know that they have a strong economy, that they can get back to work, uh, but also that we're not going to leave people behind, that we're going to have a strong education system, strong health care system, and then we're not going to question fundamental rights. Has that been a big issue going into this whole campaign, is that it has been kind of polarized as being social issues versus the economy, and you can't find any wiggle room between the two? Well, uh, yeah, I'd say more than sort of. I mean, absolutely. And and people I'm talking with feel like they don't want to have to make that polarized choice between caring about the economy at the cost of of people or caring about people or the environment at the cost of massive debt and deficit. And they feel like if they're choosing one or the other side, then they've got to give up part of who they are. I think it's absolutely possible, and the Alberta Party is finding traction, uh, because we believe and we know it's possible to have a strong economy and not give up your social values. Uh, And that message really, really is landing very well in not just Calgary Elbow, but I'd say around the whole province. On that economic factor, what do you think is going to be key to moving this city forward, especially when we talk about that downtown vacancy rate and and the the issues surrounding competitive uh, competitiveness and, and that? How do we get ourselves out of this uh, ringer that we've been in? Yeah, I think we need to create an attractive investment climate. Uh, we need to 
uh, fight for pipelines. Uh, we need to get energy investment back, and we need to diversify the economy into into tech careers, uh, into film and television. Look at agriculture; those kinds of things. But all of that is enabled not just by solid tax policy. And the Alberta Party has a plan to cut corporate tax to bring investment back to in, increase the small business deduction to bring small business back into downtown and around the whole city and province. But also to make sure we have a strong quality of life that we're not questioning fundamental rights and actually sending exactly the wrong signal to the kind of people that we need to build our economy here. Uh, We need to be open and inclusive. We need to maintain investments in arts and culture. Uh, It's not an either or. It's not economy or quality of life. Actually, I'd say high quality of life leads to a strong economy and vice versa. And that message of balance is what's really, really resonating with people here in Calgary Elbow. You mentioned that fighting for the province, and I've seen a couple of texts saying, hey, we need to be more uh, hard hard line with other levels of government when it comes to the province. How would you personify the relationship that we have currently with the federal government and with an Alberta party in power? How would you say that would change? Yeah, look, no doubt we've got to stand up for Alberta, and we've got to bring people along in in the rest of the country. Look, I I think we should be appealing not to the politicians, but to the people in B.C. and Quebec and Ontario. I think we need to do a better job, both government and industry, of telling the real story of Alberta's oil and gas. Alberta's oil and gas industry is the most responsible environmentally, the most responsible socially anywhere on earth. That's a Canadian champion story. I'll, I'll tell you, there's billions of dollars of investment, both private and public, going into environmental technologies to reduce emissions to reduce the use of fresh water. That's a Canadian champion story that that all Canadians, BC, Quebec, Ontario, everywhere, should be really proud of. And the better we are able to tell that story, the more likely we are to get pipelines built. And hey, you know what? You also need to stand up and fight a fight And and uh, sometimes. And, and I think one really good example of that is Bill C-69 uh, and Bill C-48, the, the tanker ban. Uh, both of those Uh, really hurt Alberta. Uh, And I can tell you, the Alberta Party will stand up against those. I stood up against those. Stephen Mandel has stood up against those. Uh, So I think it's a balance there. Sometimes you got a a little carrot and sometimes you got a little stick. I was going to say, is is there a point where you're being overly confrontational for the sake of being confrontational at the same time? Is there a point where you're being too nice when you're trying to sell your story? Well, listen, I, I think we, we, we should never be pushovers, uh, but I think we need in Alberta with the rest of, of Canada, frankly, we need some friends. Uh, and I think that uh, it's not about kind of rubbing their, their nose in it. Um, I think we need to hit them with both facts and also appeal to their heart. I mean, if we would talk to the people of British Columbia, the people of Quebec and Ontario, they care about, I think, the same things that Albertans care about. We care about jobs and the economy. I know they do, too. We care about the environment, and I know they do, too. And I think the good news is, the actual fact is, Alberta's energy industry is incredibly responsible. We should be really proud of that. And probably we need to be a little less Canadian about how we beat our chest on that a little bit and actually be proud of telling that story. And I think the better that people understand that story, the more likely they are to say, yeah, you know what, let's build some pipelines to actually enable the literally billions of dollars of investment in environmental technologies that are happening in the province of Alberta, both private and public, that's going to help us solve some of the problems the world has. And that's going to create Alberta businesses and technologies that we can sell to the rest of the world. And that's going to help the rest of the world address some of these environmental challenges and diversify our economy. You mentioned some of the other things that you're hearing on the doorsteps, and one happens to be education, and I'm wondering what you're hearing on that front. 
Well, look, pe- people really care about a strong education system. In Calgary Elbow, we've got a couple of schools that are going through some, uh, the boundaries are being redrawn because the schools are just flat out full. And you know, people seem to have this sense that, wait a minute, it was the NDP who've been in power for the last four years. Why is it that our schools are falling behind? Uh, why are our schools full? And, and what's going to happen if the UCP comes in and on a, on a, a plan to, to cut even further? Uh, there's real concern there. And, and uh, that's one of the things I uh, focus on as the only guy running in Calgary Elbow who actually lives in Calgary Elbow is the issues that matter to my neighbors are the issues that matter to me. So, so I think we need to make sure that if we're going to invest in anything in this province, it's got to be education. And I've got to say that is the number one priority for the Alberta Party in this election is a strong education system. Is there something to be said for some sort of, I'll call it an audit for lack of better term, of the education system to see where the money is being spent? Because there seems to be this perception out there that we're overspending on education or at the very least we need to maybe figure out where we can save some money. So is there some some credence to that notion of, hey, being a little more transparent when when it comes to uh, the dollars that are being spent on the system. Yeah, I do think we need to track the dollars, especially the ones that are allocated to classroom size reduction. At the same time, having now spent four years looking uh, very closely at every single budget that's come out, there isn't a huge amount of fat in the education system. There really isn't. There's a very close relationship between the amount of money that goes into education and the amount of money that shows up in the classroom. We can nibble around the edges and find, you know, a few hundreds of thousands or maybe a few million dollars out of this $8 billion uh, education budget on the administrative side. And we always, always, always have to be striving for efficiencies. But there's no magic wand. Uh, there is no way of, of, of simply finding hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in savings here. Uh, we need to make sure that we're funding continued enrollment growth so class sizes don't get out of hand and we need to make sure we're continuing not just to build new schools which is very important we've got to maintain the schools we've got uh, and so that's a big focus for us in the alberta party and the question of where you get the money for that is you make it a priority and you say this is going to be a priority for us we're going to find savings elsewhere in the system but we're going to fund education greg i'm going to say three words to you and i want you to tell me what comes to mind right off the bat spring bank dry dam it's a critical project. Uh, if we don't protect uh, human life, uh, remembering that five people lost their lives tragically in the, in the 2013 floods, and if it wasn't for the incredible work of first responders, it would have been a lot more than that. If we don't protect the livelihoods of the 100,000-plus people who rely on downtown Calgary, uh, boy, you think the office vacancy problem is bad now. Uh, you, you wait until we have another flood, and that flood is inevitable. Uh, we've got to protect river communities, small business, government investment all the way along river communities. And there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of pages of, of engineering studies and expert analysis that show that the Springbank project is undeniably the best way to do that, uh, the most cost-effective, the most technically effective way of doing that. Uh, and uh, we, we absolutely have to move forward with that project and when we do that we've got to be fair to the landowners who uh, whose land uh, would, would be required for that project and it's so one area i will give the government some credit for they've been i think fair in the land they've acquired so far and buying 20 percent of that land not just paying fair market value but doing things like moving heritage 
uh, ranching buildings that have been there for 100 plus years. That's part of the deal. Um, the government's paying to move a feedlot operation, for example, for one of the landowners who sold their land for part of this. So I think there's both a financial piece, but the government's got to be fair in recognizing the heritage and history of these uh, uh, areas. Uh, but it's absolutely an urgent, urgent project for downtown Calgary, uh, really for the whole city. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you actually applaud a government for doing something? Is that even allowed in this election campaign? <laughs> hey, you know, why not try something new? But I mean, look, look, it's it's a great point, though, right? Because we're here now three weeks into an election campaign and all the every you know the, both sides have been just throwing thrown rocks at each other the whole time talking about what's wrong with the other side not talking about what actually a they would do to make things better or b acknowledging when yes it is possible that uh that that, that a government can come up with good policy that i can get behind i look at some policy on both sides of the fence and i say i can get behind that um i think actually that's who we are as albertans it's a much better reflection and i think it would be refreshing for albertans to hear that a little more often from their politicians Oh, man, you're singing to the choir. I've been only, you know, my mission as civilized has been going on for a while now. Uh, Greg, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. You bet, anytime. Alberta Party candidate in Calgary Elbow and the incumbent, Greg Clark, joining us here on Calgary today as we continue to uh, highlight what is happening in that riding ahead of the vote official tomorrow. Will we have the results at the end of tomorrow? Well, that'll be an interesting question to answer. After the news at 4 o'clock, we're going to continue this discussion on Calgary Elbow with NDP candidate Janet Aramenko. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. There are a few ridings, not only in the city, but outside the city, that I'm going, man, they're going to be really fun to watch. There's a whole lot of different aspects to it. I look at Calgary Mountain View as an example. I look at... Chestermere Strathmore, I believe is the what it's titled now. All the writings have changed on me in the last four years. But that's one where it's Leela here versus Derek Fildebrand. Who's got the majority? It's going to be fascinating to see how the results roll in tomorrow. You can listen to all the coverage right here on 770 CHQR. We're going to continue our discussions now on another one of those, uh, what I believe is going to be another uh, riding that is going to be of interest for a lot of political watchers. You have the Alberta Party, Greg Clark is the incumbent, and you have the other two parties, the NDP and UCP, battling for uh, supremacy on a provincial scale. Janet Aramenko is the NDP candidate in that riding. She joins us now. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. You guys have been a busy bunch, just like all the other contenders in Calgary Elbow when it comes to door knocking. And so I'm wondering, what's the number one issue that you're hearing on the doorsteps? You know, they're, they're really, I, I can't put my thumb on one specific issue. Um, Calgary Elbow is a really interesting riding. We've got a very educated, very well-informed uh, uh, constituency. And so it, it really does touch an awful lot of bases. Um, you know, it won't come as a surprise, of course, that the economy um, really does tend to play very prominent at the doors. But I also hear uh, a real desire to talk about some of the other important issues. And so we can, I think, uh, speak to both of those. We've been door knocking since September in Calgary Elbow because we 
really want for people to know that they've got somebody that they can vote for uh, in me as a candidate. But then, of course, we are always prepared to speak to um, the, the the platform that the NDP released, uh, the leadership that Rachel Motley has been able to provide, and frankly, a track record that, that I think speaks volumes in, in terms of the quality of, of government that we are able to provide all Albertans. One of the messages that we've heard loud and clear, especially here in Calgary, happens to be around downtown office office vacancy. And what are you telling people on the doorsteps in terms of trying to convince them that, hey, this party is on its way to helping uh, uh, deal with that impact? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, I, I ran for city council in 2017, and that was a real issue even back then. Um, and we know that that, that was a, a downhill slide that, that had begun even before Rachel Motley came into office in 2015. But I think that we have a real plan um, that looks to diversify the economy, that looks to create good mortgage-paying jobs, and that we will get uh, downtown Calgary back to work. I think it is it is it has been a slow recovery. We know that there are still Calgary families who are really struggling, and certainly across the province. But that's why we have taken uh, a very stable and predictable approach to advocating for the pipeline, to championing our economy uh, across this country and, frankly, around the world, and that uh, that diversification is ultimately going to be what what benefits um, downtown Calgary, this economic engine of Western Canada in the long run. It's a fascinating comment you made about, you know, how we're going to champion uh, pipelines and that kind of thing. Because had you asked an NDP member, you know, say six or ten years ago, that might not have been the response. And so in your estimation, what's changed over the last little while? Well, you know, I'm running for the NDP now in 2019, and I am thrilled to be a member of the party. Honestly, Joe, um, I, I haven't always agreed with the NDP policies of the past, but I'm running now because I believe in Rachel Molly. Uh, I'm a born and raised Calgarian. I am from the Southwest. I know this community and this riding intimately well. And uh, what I can do now is, is speak to the NDP and the fact that I think a lot of people's opinions, frankly, have changed on, on what Alberta's new Democrats can offer. Um, we have seen with Rachel Motley the kind of leadership that, uh, that really speaks to uh, Albertans, that speaks to all Albertans. And, uh, and, and we've seen that demonstrated in the kind of advocacy that she has pursued when it comes to getting that pipeline built. Um, I think that we are seeing uh, day by day, we're getting closer and closer to getting Trans Mountain approved. And I really strongly believe that with Rachel Notley's efforts and, and the kind of uh, predictability and integrity that she has brought to those conversations, that we will see an approval by the end of May. You're in a different kind of riding in that it's not held by either of the two main parties at the moment. You have a third contender in Greg Clark that is uh, the incumbent in all of this. And has that added a, a different layer to what you're trying to bring to the table? Because he is, in, in a lot of people's estimations, the, the militant middle of uh, what is thought to be two extremes between the NDP and the UCP. You know, I, I know it's certainly, you bet, it is. it does add a different dynamic in Calgary Elbow when there are three uh, real contenders who have a shot of winning. Um, and so we have not been approaching this campaign, and I, and I think it kind of speaks down to the people in Calgary Elbow when we talk about these things in very binary black and white terms. Uh, we have approached, I think, the concerns of Calgary Elbow with a great deal of 
substance and uh, and of nuance that that I think speaks to those concerns and also speaks to uh, what this government is able to provide moving forward. I I know Greg. Um, I I like him. I think he has served Calgary Elbow uh, very well. But at the end of the day, uh, this really is on April seventeenth. Whether Albertans want to have Premier Notley or Premier Kenny. And uh, sometimes I think we overcomplicate this this decision-making a little bit. What we have been doing, as I said, we have been getting out since September to make sure that people in Calgary Elbow know that we're actually offering a one-two punch, that they have someone in me who can be an effective advocate for them and an elected representative for them in Edmonton. But then they've also got this real leader who is speaking to the things that really matter to them, both on the economic and the social sides of the ledger. A few uh, items of interest for a lot of the people in your riding. I'm going to start, I'm going to say three words, and I want your first response to that. And those three words are Springbank Dry Dam. Yes, 100%. Yes. Uh, we have uh, been supportive of Springbank Dry Dam very clearly. Um, uh, certainly, we know that at the time, back in 2013, of course, these numbers are going to be a little bit less best based on your other question. Um, 60% of Calgarians were working in downtown Calgary. The Elbow River flows almost entirely through this riding, and we know that communities were absolutely clobbered in 2013. It caused $5 billion worth of damage. Five people lost their lives, and uh, any kind of additional waffling on this issue is simply just is simply putting Calgary at risk. Another flood like we had in 2013 would be absolutely catastrophic. I really don't think we can overstate the impact of of what that would look like again if we were hit there. And and we know, um, I, I know it shouldn't always have to be said, but many people, uh, if they're still questioning climate change, I mean, we know that it's possible that we could have another flood like we had in 2013. And so we are very committed and are making real progress on Springbank Dry Dam. Um, and I think that there is consensus across this party and across all candidates that we support Springbank Dry Dam. Unfortunately, the UCP have not shown that kind of consistency amongst their candidates. Uh, the uh, UCP candidate in Banff Kananaskis has come out unequivocally against Springbank Dry Dam. And I just think that that's uh, a risk that should not be taken when it comes to the families and the homes and the livelihoods that are at risk. One of the questions I posed to Greg Clark earlier on in the program was about healthcare and education. And there are a couple of other topics that uh, have garnered a lot of talk during this campaign. What I wonder is, is it time for us to have a full-scale audit of both of those where, so we know where the money is going to put any of the talk about too much waste or too much fat in the system finally to bed? Uh, well, uh, so this is this is a this is a question that I haven't had yet, and so thanks a lot for asking <laughs> it. I would say my a blanket statement first off is that transparency is really important. Absolutely, healthcare is the largest item in the budget, and uh, and we should absolutely be accountable for how dollars are spent there. I think my concern is that for an awfully long time, if we had issues in either of those very complex systems of education and healthcare, that we grew into a habit of just throwing money at the issue. And uh, what we have demonstrated, I think, with the NDP is that that's not a solution anymore. 
Uh, instead, what we want is to establish real out, real outcomes and real impact for, for Albertans and that they deserve the kinds of programs and services that they have come to count on. But we want to make sure that uh, when families are going through one of the toughest times in their lives, that they have the supports and the programs that they need. Um, we hear loud and clear from nurses. My, my husband works in healthcare, uh, and that it can be a very challenging space already. And that if we can, if, if we have, uh, another government who isn't committed to, uh, holding spending when it comes to population growth and inflation, that that can have a very real negative impact on the quality of service that we receive. Um, I think right from 2015, Rachel Motley, made the uh, somewhat unglamorous but incredibly important commitment to provide stable and predictable funding for healthcare and education because during a time of, of uncertainty for an awful lot of families, we knew that that was something that we absolutely wanted to guarantee. You mentioned the idea that it is going to be a tight race in that riding, and I'm curious from that standpoint is whoever wins is going to have a bit of an uphill battle because all of a sudden you're going to be saying, okay, I've got you know, a good chunk of the population who didn't vote for me. And in this election campaign that has been very divisive, how do you try to appease everybody um, that wasn't necessarily voting for you if you do happen to be the one to represent them in Edmonton? Well, I think I would lean on our platform and on a track record that demonstrates that we really have been thinking about all Albertans. And I think what is so exciting is that we have a platform that speaks to all Albertans because we have a slate of candidates who reflect the diversity of this province. And so we have more than half of our candidates are women, uh, you know, so proud to be running with a team that has real diversity when it comes to backgrounds, professional expertise, um, and, uh, and priorities. And so with that kind of uh, diversity around the table when it comes to decision making, I really think we do, uh, we have created the kind of platform and the policies, programs, and services that are, are inclusive and, and will include all Albertans at the table. I, I'll, I'll add too. I mean, I, I think that one one item that really stands out for me as somebody who has been an advocate in social policy for such a long time is that I'm incredibly proud of the $25 a day childcare program that has been rolled out by the NDP. Um, that, even in the most conservative estimates, has a two to one return on investment. And I'm really concerned. Speaking of inclusive, speaking of a platform that speaks to all Albertans that the UCP in their 177-page platform mentioned child care a total of zero times. Uh, and so we can talk about job creation all we want, but unless we're actually addressing some of the impediments to labor force participation, especially for moms and new parents, then we're excluding a pretty significant segment of the population from, that, from, from the, the economic recovery that I believe is on the way. Janet, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Janet Aramenko is representing the NDP in Calgary Elbow. Your other choices, Greg Clark of the Alberta Party, Robin McIntosh of the Liberals, Green Party's Quinn Rupert, and Doug Schweitzer of the UCP. I only did that in alphabetical order. There's no bias there. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Uh, let's head on over to another story here now. And this one breaks my heart. Syrian refugee families hopes for a better life in Canada shattered after the death of a nine-year-old girl who died by suicide after being uh, bullied. And it opens up this discussion once again about bullying. 
Kathy Keo is Director of Counseling Initiatives at the Calgary Counseling Centre, and she joins us now. Kathy, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. When you hear these stories, what comes to mind first? Um, how sad and devastating it is for our families, for our communities, for our society, when a young person um, decides that there is no other option. It shocked me is nine years old. Like these are the kinds of things that are rolling through a kid's mind at nine years old. Like how does this happen? And I think a lot of people are going through that same thought process. And from your standpoint, is there a way to answer that answer that question, or or is it so multifaceted that it's it's hard to encapsulate it all? Yeah, it's multifaceted faceted and it's very, very complex and any um, kind of a reason would leave us to cause and effect thinking and if this is much beyond that. There isn't ever just one um, issue or one bad day. It's a compilation of a lot of things. When talking to parents, and we'll start with the bullied, what would you say they need to be keeping in mind? Um, I think think that parents have to be aware that our society in general can be a very, very difficult place to nurture and to grow and to provide our children with uh, a rich environment where they will be able to manage the demands of day-to-day life and the, the, the conflict that often is associated with being with a bunch of other people. When it comes to those who are parents who happen to be uh, their kids, happen to be the bullies, I know in some cases they go, ah, not my kid, or it'll be kids will be kids, or there seems to be an excuse in that regard. How important is it for them to really take that step back and go, I need to get ahead of this because it could escalate even further? Yeah, I think as parents that we all need to be thinking from both sides of the coin. Yeah, there aren't. It's not. You're not a special person if you're a bully, and you're a very. You're a person who's in a lot of pain if you're being victimized by bullying. So we need to understand that any one of us could be in any of those two positions, and being ahead of it is critical. And you know, bullying is associated with for both the person who's perpetrating and the person who's on the other end receiving with depression, anxiety, sleep problems poor academic grades, um, longer-term, poor outcomes longer-term in terms of growth and development and social relationships. When you and I have talked in the past, one of the things that I remember that conversation going into is having empathy for the bully as well and understanding that they don't necessarily have the cleanest of upbringings and that kind of thing. And how important is it for everyone to be strong in their convictions, but also to have some empathy in, in making sure that everybody is getting the help that they need? We need that uh, because... From our perspective, this is a piece about skill sets and what are the the areas where children, our youth, and as parents, we strengthen everybody because we know that there's protective factors and we know there's vulnerability factors and empathy is one of the key areas as well as other emotional management. So teaching our children to, to kind of have a way of understanding and realizing that they have a job to do in terms of the information because cyberbullying is also a piece of this big issue. Mm-hmm. Boys tend to experience it more physically, girls more emotionally, more cyber um, bullying or other kinds of tactics that would be more on an emotional level. 
but that they need to, because their job is, if you're being bullied, is to not internalize the aggression, to have a way of working with boundary skills, management skills, problem solving, and conflict resolution so that you don't internalize the aggression that somebody else is perpetrating on you. And for the perpetrator to develop other skills so that they can get their needs met in a more socially appropriate way. How do you open up that conversation with your kids, especially if you're sitting there in the car, driving home, waiting to talk to them? It's a conversation that develops very, very early on. It's pro-social behaviors that we model within our own families and practicing positive conflict resolution at home between ourselves, among siblings, between family members, extended families, and friends. Uh, Children need to see the role modeling. They need to be encouraged to speak out about what's happening and to know that there's opportunities and options that sometimes adults have to take on. But mostly, I think as parents, we need to be able to recognize what some of those signs and symptoms are in terms of changes in behavior. Because some of this kids won't have the words for, we sort of have to be there to support them and to help validate that it'll it'll be okay, but not everybody can handle everything on their own. If you want more of those resources from Kathy and the team at the Calgary Counseling Center, you can follow them at YYC underscore counseling. I have these open conversations every so often about how much of an impact Twitter and social media actually have on an election campaign. Like, do you change your mind based off of what a a troll says or what someone else says? And even beyond that, I'm curious nowadays as to whether many people outside of their business endeavors really want to be on Twitter. That being said, this might actually give you a little bit of, I I saw one report saying up to 60% of the users that were using the hashtag at AB vote or at AB ledge were bots. So to dive through some of the numbers and some of the things that he's noticed as he's been looking into it in depth is Global News Online Content Coordinator, Adam Toy. Adam, thanks for joining us in studio today. Thanks for having me. All right. So this stat right off the bat threw me for a loop, 179 tweets in a 24-hour day, how is that even remotely possible? Well, if you're a human being and you don't need sleep or to work or to eat or to go to the bathroom or wash yourself, then it's potentially possible. Okay. However, if you're a robot, uh, it's perfectly likely. How Describe this idea of a bot to me because I, I, I still... I, is it a is it a program? Is it software? Like, how is it possible that we're seeing these bots show up when we're kind of led to believe that hey, these are all real people with real concerns and real thoughts? Right. So, a, a Twitter bot is basically a Twitter account that has been programmed to automatically do something. So, there are Twitter bots out there that uh, I think it was uh, I'm not sure if it was MIT lab or some science lab where they had a plant in their lab and it would tweet out, "I need water." When the hydrometer in, I don't know if hydrometer is the right word, but when when the sensor tells them that the that the soil is too dry and it tweets out, I need water, that's a Twitter bot. Very right. simple, very benign. But there's other Twitter bots out there when uh, they see certain phrases or names or hashtags, hashtags or accounts tweet uh, that they will respond in some sort of a, a manner that, uh, I mean, if we're talking political conversations, uh, as in this uh, this study put out by Mention Map Analytics, uh, these, these political conversations, they will try to torque the conversation in one direction, left or right, on the mm-hmm. political spectrum. And the goal at the end end of the day for these bots is to do what? 
to move the political conversation in a certain direction, to sow discord among those folks who are, who are maybe trying to have a uh, a nuanced conversation on Twitter about political uh, topics. Uh, just an aside, my thoughts only don't have nuanced political conversations on Twitter. <laughs> but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to torque it to the left or to the right and try to cause outrage and, like I said, sow discord so, to, so, so then you can either start uh, uh, doubting yourself or start to play into any sort of other cognitive biases like uh, confirmation bias mm. in, the, in the side. Yeah. On the, the other interesting part is these bots have no real um, alliance. Right, and we use the same with uh, the Russian troll farms, for example, is that they're not sitting there going, hey, we're going to support Trump on this, or hey, we're going to support Hillary on this. It's just to poke the bear and see what happens more than anything else, it seems. Absolutely. Like, I, I don't know if you ever got this this uh, advice growing up, but uh, and, and under the, like the thumb of a bully, the only, uh, and some advice that I got was a bully will only try, is just trying to get a rise out of you, just mm. trying to get a reaction out of you. And, and I, I see these bots, uh, that's, you know, if you read the language, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get a reaction. And so if you are able to provide no reaction, if you don't retweet or respond or f- like it or share it or or take what this bot said on Twitter and then go and, you know, share it in the real world, uh, then you're able to effectively neutralize these bots. But yeah, they're just trying to get a rise. And the crazy part about it, too, is I think, especially with algorithms, the way they work now is because there are so many of these accounts, chances are if you're following one person or one thing, that's going to get a lot more play, especially if it's been, say, a tweet has been retweeted by 300 bots. Yeah. All of a sudden, that's going to get a lot more play than, you know, the simplistic radio host who tweets something, (laughs) you know, basic human decency is awesome and gets three retweets. Nobody's going to notice it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And where on social media platforms where if the object is to go viral, uh, these bots are able to turn that virality up to 11 uh, or even to use another metaphor they're able to to, to pump some steroids into that virality mm-hmm. from this standpoint then for those who are still on Twitter which I still kind of have questions to how many people out there in the real <laughs> world are on Twitter outside of journalists athletes and bots now um how can you spot a bot? Is there anything that's a real telltale sign? There is a number of them. Uh, Symantec has a great breakdown. Symantec, the antivirus company, they have a great breakdown on how to spot a bot. Um, one is they have a relatively recent creation date. So if like they were created, what are we at? Today is the 15th. So if they were created on the 8th of April, yeah, they're probably a bot. If they don't have a picture in their uh, in their, their profile, uh, if they don't have a lot of followers, or if their activity is only liking and only retweeting, that's probably probably going to be a bot um and also if they like as we mentioned earlier if they tweet so frequently that it's nearly impossible for a human being to do they're probably a bot <laughs> so this is a case of if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck it's probably a duck fair enough and you know what i've found that the best medicine for those ducks is the mute button <laughs> my favorite it's gotten to work out this election campaign and i'm sure this is only the beginning adam i have this weird ungodly feeling that uh come the fall federal election this conversation is going to get ramped up just that much more yes absolutely adam appreciate the time and the insight today and all your hard work on uh, looking through all those i can't even imagine how your sanity is right now <laughs> uh with all the bots thanks for coming in thanks for having me
Let's lighten things up just a little bit. If you happen to watch HBO, chances are you probably watched Game of Thrones last night. You've probably been binge watched it a hundred times. Uh, I'm not going to try, especially if you've PVR'd it, I'm not going to try to give away anything in what happened in the episode yesterday. Admittedly, I've only been watching for a couple of seasons. Whatever season was that Hodor died was kind of the first episode that I really remember watching. And that wasn't a spoiler. And uh, Matt Air from Friday Chat with Matt is uh, talking in my ear. Uh, but it is still a phenomenon. It's something that I don't know if we'll ever see this again in terms of TV shows that really capture our attention. Brett McGarry from the Couch Potatoes joining us now on the program to dive more into this. Brett, thanks for the time today. Oh, hey, how are you? Oh, I am fantastic. I'm caught up on my sleep, although I wonder how you're doing because uh, you had to get up early after sitting up and watching uh, Game of Thrones last night, didn't you? I did stay up, yeah. I made. I had a choice because the cable provider I'm on, Shaw, they started at 10 o'clock my time, but the other cable provider in town, they started at 8 o'clock because it airs on HBO at nine Eastern, right? Uh, so it would be eight o'clock Winnipeg time, but we end up with your feed, uh, the Mountain Time. Oh, okay. So I had to wait until ten, and it ends at eleven, and then I had to go online and read some reviews and read some theories. And by the time <laughs> I went to bed, it was eleven thirty, and uh, then my alarm clock went off at two thirty. And I was not a happy camper this morning, but it was worth it. I believe that. And especially when you're going into the last number of episodes before this show actually comes to an end. And it's crazy that how many different conspiracy theories there are about what's going to happen over the next six episodes. I mean, it ranges from everybody winning, including uh, the White Walkers. I mean, everybody's got a chance at this thing because that's how much intrigue I think has been involved in this show from the onset. Well, this like the show, the gap between season seven and season eight was uh, almost two years. Like season yeah. seven ended in late August of 2017. So people have just been frothing at the mouth waiting for this final season to air, especially when there's only six episodes in this final season. So people have been uh, so anxious for it to arrive. It's the biggest show on television. HBO is expecting when all is said and done that 30 million people will have tuned in to watch this first episode like again they that they sort of make that number based on how many people watched the first run and then how many people watched the the second run and then you know how many people caught up in their pvr later in the week and how many used the digital stream but they, like there are no shows left on television that command that kind of a, a an audience like it really is probably the only true water cooler show that's left mm-hmm. on TV. So yeah, when you have a show like that, that is that popular, the theories uh, go insane. And that's such a, just that whole theory sort of subculture on the internet is fun. I try to, to avoid that because some of the theories end up being bang on and then you just end up spoiling the story <laughs> for yourself. So I try not to read too much of that because some of the nerds actually get it right. And then you're sort of screwed by that. What is it that has caught everybody's attention on this show like it has? And what has made it that kind of the last of this frontier of of shows that is really capturing so many people's attention? It's not just, you know, one episode. They're glued. They are binging. They are watching everything they possibly can right from the onset. I think it's the scope of the show. It's just such a huge, ambitious show. And 
so that alone makes it a spectacle, right? Like this is a, the, the word epic gets overused these days, but this truly is the epic show on television. They shoot it in, I think, 10 different countries, dozens of locations, many of them remote. The visual effects are through the roof. Like there's the reported cost for this final season. It's $15 million per episode. The television show, this isn't a big budget movie. This is a TV show. So when you combine the scope with the fact that this isn't just a fantasy show with dragons and zombies and some magic, like I think it, it sort of has evolved into more of that big budget special effects stuff but it, it it's at the center of it it's a power struggle it's a, it's essentially a soap opera mm-hmm. set in the confines of a fantasy show and uh, so i think it's that human element it's the characters you know it, it it's just it's so compelling and addictive and you just want more. It's a beautiful show. It's fun. It's got something, I think, it's one of the shows that actually does have something for almost everyone. I have been kind of surprised by that notion. It has become a cultural phenomenon, something that I would argue you're not going to see again because, I mean, at the end of the day, anything that is created from here on out is going to be looked at as just a copycat. Can you actually do something similar i i don't know if you can i think the bar's kind of been set in this genre anyways oh yeah for sure it's uh, i watched the first six seasons and by the time i got to the end of the sixth season i thought i think i'm going to rewatch this whole thing because every year game of thrones would come on after taking a year off and i would realize i don't remember who that person is I can't remember that person's name. I don't know who what what their connection is to this person. So it actually took a second run. Like I kind of binged through it over the like a two or three week period where I watched seasons one through six again. And by that point, it, that's when I was able to finally connect all of the dots. So it just it's such a big show. Usually, what happens now is I'll watch the episode when it first airs, and then I'll watch it again just to catch everything that I missed because there's so much to it. It's so complex. There's, it's, it's like a, a buffet. There's, you, mm-hmm. can, you, can, you can never stop eating, consuming Game of Thrones, <laughs> and you will always pick up something new. So, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the many reasons why people just uh, sort of run to this show and, and, and consume it so vigorously. You brought up a great point about setting the stage over the course of the last little while and, and even watching this last uh, last night's episode is I got the sense that that was what the episode was mainly uh, premised on was, hey, let's set the stage for you know the relationships that we have to this point. Let's r- make everybody kind of remember what's happened because as you mentioned, they've been off for a year and a half, almost two years. And yeah. then it sets the stage for, uh, I watched right up until, you know, hey, coming up next time. And all of a sudden it's, oh, this is either the start of the big war or this is just a, a little bit of a teaser to what's to come. Yeah, they have to. Well, then the first episode usually does. They, they just kind of have to reset the table and kind of uh, let you know what the, the, like usually every season has kind of a, a new theme or a new sort of central conflict but we already know what the central conflict is but they still do have to take that time to get you reinvested back into that world uh but we're basically they're they're setting 
they're setting up the chessboard for the final fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the Northerners are going to fight the the army of the dead, and then I guess when that's done, then they're going to have to fight the Lannisters for the Iron Throne. And who's going to sit on the Iron Throne? Who knows? Now that we know that. Well, anyway, I don't. <laughs> Let, let's not ruin it for those who've PVR'd it. That, we'll stop it there. Thanks so much for joining us and give us a little bit more insight into this crazy show that everybody's talking about. Oh yeah, man! It's uh, I, the one. The one thing about it is, I've gotten so used to binging on stuff. So I kind of like the fact that I now no. have this anti- this weekly anticipation. Yeah, okay, I have something good. to look forward to <laughs> at the end of the week. So by the time that sixth episode rolls around. Uh, the ratings are going to, it's going to be chaos. All you're going to hear about that day, that week is Game of Thrones. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.